links rely on partnerships and the amazing work of so many organizations and leaders to achieve our collective community goals. I hold dear the bonds of friendship. We are friends transforming communities through service. implement transformative programs that address the most critical needs of underserved communities. Welcome to LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links, a podcast which transforms our community by highlighting the issues, resources, and leaders that you need to know. Hello, and welcome to the next episode of LinkedIn Impact with the Arlington Links. My name is Krista Jones, and I'm excited to host this podcast produced by the Arlington, Virginia chapter of the Links Incorporated. The definition of community leadership is continually expanded to include decision-making responsibilities on commissions, nonprofit boards, and corporate boards. Oftentimes, we focus on serving on nonprofit boards, but serving as a corporate director has been more elusive, especially for Black women. According to the Women Business Coalition, in January of 2023, women comprised nearly 33% of new appointments to boards of public companies. Among the 36 of the 117 newly appointed women board members who chose to disclose their race, 9% were Black women. But we have seen some improvements. In fact, companies in the S&P 500 added more Black women to their boards in the 12 months spanning 2021 and 2022 than in any similar period in at least the past 15 years. The increase in the number of women on boards in recent years has partially been driven by a California law designed to increase the number of women on corporate boards. Despite the fact that the law was declared unconstitutional in May of 2022, it propelled a much-needed shift in board representation. Today, I have with me Paula Chumley, a seasoned corporate director who has served on 10 public company boards. She provides so many pearls of wisdom about the nuts and bolts of serving on a corporate board and what you need to do to put yourself in the position to get that board seat. Enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much, Paula, for joining us today. Can you talk just more about how you got to this point in your life? I started out on the financial track in my career, finally ending up as the CFO for Blue Cross Blue Shield in Philadelphia, after which I moved from being a CFO to actually being a president of a division and having P&L responsibility and did that for the next several years of my career. When I was working for Owens Corning Fiberglass, I got recommended by a colleague as a candidate for the board of Armco uh, of AK Steel at the time. And at that time, I was the president of an operating division for Owens Corning uh, Fiberglass in Toledo. 
And so I served on that board for a number of years while also working as the president of an operating division for Owens Corning. We sold Armco Steel to AK Steel. And shortly after that, I was approached by the Nationwide Mutual Fund because I had been a sitting CFO to serve on the Nationwide Mutual Board. And so with the support of my CEO, Glenn Heiner, who was the, the CEO of Owens Corning at the time, I joined that board. Shortly after that, my husband got sick with cancer and I was out of the workforce for two years. Uh, when he passed, I moved back into the workforce as president of a division for Sappy Fine Paper in Boston. Part of the package to join the company that I had negotiated was that in addition to serving on the nationwide board, I could join one other public company board. And so was recruited to join the board of Densefly. Uh, they're the world's largest provider of dental technology. Probably about three or four years after that, in 2004, Sappy was going through a downsizing. My husband had passed away. I wanted to start dating again, but the division that I was running for Owens Corning was primarily international. So I was spending three out of four weeks every year overseas, which wasn't exactly compatible with dating again. <laughs> So when our CEO started saying that she needed to downsize her direct reports because the paper industry is highly cyclical and we were going through another downturn, I actually raised my hand and said, fine, I'd be happy to take a package and to leave. And so at that point in time, I was on two public company boards, started looking for another president's opportunity. At the same time, I got approached about joining a third public company board. My background was at that time unique to the industry because I had P&L responsibility in an industrial products manufacturing uh, company, and I had also been a sitting CFO. But when I talked to my kitchen cabinet, they basically, their advice to me was, you can do one or the other. You cannot do both. If you want to go back into a P&L line operating role, you cannot take on a third board. But I looked at the opportunity to be a public company director full time and found it very attractive because in corporate America, the typical retirement age was 62 to 65, whereas for board service, the typical retirement age of that age was 70 and has mm. since climbed to 75. But I felt that I would have a longer career runway if I were to not go back to work in a PL position, but just become a full-time director. So basically, I took my package, and during 2004, after a lot of networking with a lot of individuals, ended up becoming a full-time director, started out serving on six public company boards, which at the time was a good number. The workload was significantly less. The time required was significantly less. And so basically morphed. So I feel like I've had three stages to my career. 
The first was a financial one and being a CFO. The second one was moving over and becoming the president of an operating division with P&L responsibility. And then the third was basically building a career as a full-time director. I've been a full-time director now um, for pretty close to 18 to 20 years. I just retired from the nationwide mutual fund board after being on that board for 22 years. In the last couple of years, basically probably since about 2016, 18, I have used the board platform to deepen my career in governance. I started teaching for the National Association of Corporate Directors. So I have blended being a full-time director with also teaching corporate governance. And so I'm a independent faculty member for a program they call their in-boardroom program, where we go in and we teach directors as a team. And we do board evaluations, we do individual director evaluations, et cetera. So Times change, and in that time period that I've been a full-time director, I have served on 10 different boards. I am currently on three. Uh, two of them are public. One is a venture-backed pre-IPO board, and I have my little consulting uh, practice on the side where I work for NACD and also train individual new directors, primarily women directors. And that is how I started working for Women in Technology, who has had a number of training programs that they've run for quite a while in partnership with NACD, training prospective senior women leaders about what board service is about. And that's where I am today. So I'd love to know, one of the things you mentioned was you did a lot of networking at that particular time. Can you talk a little bit more what that looked like for you at that time? Once I decided that I wanted to be a director full time, I raised the question, who would be most knowledgeable about opportunity? And those groups fell into three buckets. One was the recruiting world, and you have recruiters who just focus on board placements. And so because I was already on two public company boards, I could go back and talk to those recruiters and, and sort of get a sense of who else and how else do you network your way into the recruiting firms that do primarily do board placements. So that was one bucket. Another bucket was where were their organizations that focused on supplying uh, women board candidates? And so at the time I was living in Boston, there were a number of the Commonwealth Club and a number of other groups in Boston that basically had programs to promote women. And the third was individual networking. Where did I know other senior executives who were sitting on corporate boards who would be knowledgeable about board opportunities? And so you work through a process. And, and I believe if you're looking for a board opportunity, it's very much like looking for a job. And so you map out a networking campaign about how what does a board resume look like? One of the other things I did from the very beginning was I worked with a resume writing firm to put mm -hmm. together a 
board resume. And a board resume is still very different from a career resume. And so I worked with them to put together a board resume, then got that board resume into the recruiting companies, and then started networking by meeting with individual colleagues that were member of associations and organizations and law firms, all the folks that are sources for candidates. And then the third one was just individual networking with other folks that I knew that might be aware of board opportunities. So how did I make sure that all the colleagues that I had on the dense fly board knew that I had made this transition and was therefore open to other board opportunities? Same thing on my nationwide board. How did I make sure that my colleagues, as well as a law firm and the accounting firm and stuff that we were using, knew that I was interested in other board opportunities? So I did network along those three tranches. And I think that's still very valid today. If you want to go into board service, you've got to get a board resume. And then you've got to say, how do I get that resume into organizations? that promote the placement of directors. Today, I spend a lot of time with the Executive Leadership Council, which are the African-Americans that are within three layers of their CEO in the Fortune 1000. And they have a very aggressive board referral program that I just retired as, as chair of that, that, what we call the CBI committee. I just retired as that chair in our handing it over to a wonderful successor, Arlene Lowe, and her co-chair, Singleton McAllister. And they basically, folks approach us about, they're looking for African-American candidates with a very specific background. And so the organization sends them a list of candidates, referrals, and, and then it's up to the company and the ELC member to pursue the opportunity. But you have that you have women corporate directors, you have the Athena group, you have women in technology, you have what has grown up in the last five, you know, to seven years is a whole lot of organizations that are focused on referring women for board opportunities. And then the major recruiting firms have gotten more interested in it. You also have boutique firms that have developed like uh, TrueStar, uh, where who refers a lot of consulting clients and stuff to us. And when they get new women directors, you know, or I get candidates and stuff that I think would fit the profile, they have their own database. And so if I run across chief human resource officers, chief marketing officers, folks that are now in the background that boards are looking for today, TrueStar is a specialized database because they primarily focus on women, but you have the same thing with Russell Reynolds, Corn Ferry, and I'm forgetting the others' names right now, but there's three or four big ones. And then literally almost every mid-sized recruiting firm that's out there also does board placement because once you place a senior executive or a CEO, when they're looking for a board member, especially if they're a mid-sized uh, public company, they will come back to that recruiting firm that helped place them. So those are some of the things that I, I think are important. And then you mentioned the board resume. How? What are some of the main ways that that's different from a professional resume? A board resume is still two pages. 
it is more focused on what can you contribute to the board's role in oversight? Because a board, whether you are a public company, a private company, and nonprofits, I think, are different. But public or private, your primary role is to represent a group of shareholders, whether the shareholders are your individual who has invested in a company or whether the shareholders are the family, private company, you are representing someone. But at the same time, the skill that goes with corporate director is the skill of oversight. It's not the skill of implementation. That's the responsibility of management. And so you write your board resume with a slant towards how does being the chief marketing officer help me to oversee the success or failure of the marketing approaches that this particular company takes towards its marketplace. And so for the most part, corporate directors, you know, when my grandchildren say, what is it you do for a living? I said, I read and I ask really good questions. Because basically what you're doing is asking management questions about how did they perform if they didn't make a budget, what caused the variance, what are they doing to fix it, okay, and when can you expect to see turnaround results. If you're having a conversation with management about strategy, you ask lots of questions about the competitors and what they're good at and what they're not good at. You ask questions about emerging opportunities. You ask questions about emerging disruption. And so a lot of oversight, yes, you are reviewing the materials, but you're reviewing the materials and asking good questions with the idea that you're trying to either guide, counsel, motivate, push management to do something differently. And so a board resume basically says, yes, I have this experience, but it's experience which allows me to know what a good operation looks like. And so it covers your career background, but it also says and demonstrates leadership. So if you're an individual contributor, it makes it very hard, I think, to become a board member as opposed to you're the chief human resources officer for an organization that has 6,000 employees. If you're in that role, that person knows what a good budget looks like. They know what infrastructure a human resource organization is supposed to have. They know how to lead a human resources team. So they know how to listen to the quality of the answers and stuff that they're being given by management because You listened to all the folks who directly reported to you when you were the chief human resources officer. Mm -hmm. And so board resumes emphasize emphasize your leadership and your oversight capability. And there are tons of resources and stuff that are out there. The recruiting firms, the business professional organizations, et cetera, that have samples of what a board resume looks like. It's still the traditional two pages. And then the the thing, the resume gets you in the door. Um, The resume won't get you the seat. It'll get you in the door, but you have to not only bring your 
technical expertise, accounting, marketing, cyber, digital, but you also have to bring a secondary expertise, which is the expertise of governance. So if you're really interested in this, I, I learned on the fly, so to speak, <laughs> um, because I was in a full-time day job. But the National Association of Corporate Directors runs a director professionalism course, which is online for like $1,300. Mm -hmm. uh, well, $1,300 to join. And then I think it's like close to $4,000 to go through the training program. Governance has its own language. Boards have a certain way that they function. Um, there's a certain relationship between the board and management. There's another relationship between the board and your fellow colleagues on the board. And so if you want a position, you cannot approach or you harm yourself if you approach the interview from the position only of an executive. So anything you can do to learn the world of corporate governance gives you a leg up in an interview. So yes, because the hardest position to get on a board is your first one. Because no one wants to teach an executive how to be a board member. And so they're all, so the challenge is to say, yes, I'm a board member and yes, I'm the chief marketing officer, but oh, by the way, I already know how corporate boards function. Right. Okay. Because I've been through NACD's director professionalism exam, or I'm a certified um, director. So I understand what's involved in compensation and compensating the CEO. I know how to read a proxy statement. I know how to read a 10K. And when you're interviewing, your knowledge of those things comes across and that sends a signal to the board members who in fact are interviewing you to join them on the team. So you need to do the resume and then you also need to say, when in my career does it make sense for me to become a full-time director? I mean, at the time that I moved over to being a full-time director, I was already a decision, a division president. and this was a longer runway for me than, you know, trying to get a CEO's job and you're going to be CEO for five years and then what do you do? So it was a better opportunity for me as a woman with an industrial products background at the time that, that I did this, you know, which was in the early, early 2000s when, because I, I started becoming a full-time director in 2004. So what was the time commitment like? For each individual one? The time commitment today for each board, if you are just a board member, it's 250 hours a year. Okay. And that's a number that NACD tracks and publishes. If you're in a board leadership role, depending upon which committee you chair, it'll increase from 250 to about 400 hours a year. And if you are the chair of the board or the lead independent director, it's five to 600 hours a year. So the other thing is the, the workload. I mean, when I first became a director, the, the average time commitment was like 150 hours. So another 100 hours of work has gotten layered on. And so when I first became a director, you could do six boards. Now, you know, you're fully occupied if you're doing four or three. Um, because the workload has gone up and what the 250 hours includes, it's not the travel time to get to your board. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's the time that you're spending in meetings. I chair an audit committee. I chair two audit committees. And so 
in addition to going to the meetings, I have a monthly call with the CFO. I will do, um, and, and I actually do two calls a month with the CFO because one call is what's going on with the organization. I have another call with her and her full team and him and his full team, since I'm doing two of them, in preparation for the audit committee meeting. The same thing is happening with whoever chairs compensation. They are talking to the outside comp consultant and they are talking to the head of human resources internally in preparation for the committee meetings that you are leading. If you are a board chair or a lead independent director, you aren't doing those subject matter interfaces, but you're talking to the CEO every two weeks. Mm -hmm. about what's going on within the business. So depending upon where you are in the hierarchy and how much work you've taken on, you can do anywhere from 250 to 600 hours a year on a board. The feeling is, and these are guidelines that come from a governance watchdog called ISS, the ISS and the Wisconsin State Pension Authority, which, which votes proxy, basically say that if you are working in a senior level position and you're a CEO, you can do one outside board. You can do your own board and one outside board. The practice today is that most sitting senior executives do one outside board. You can pick up a second outside board if you're on your way to retirement. So I know a number of colleagues who have told their CEO they're going to retire. And in that last year, while they're transitioning with their successor, they'll go out and get a second board. But the thing that also limits the number of boards, if you are a sitting executive, is the schedule. You have board meetings. Yes, they are scheduled in advance. But you have to be available if anything happens in that company. And it is expected that you will make those meetings a priority. Well, think about COVID. So if you're an operating line executive, you're tied up with making sure your own organization makes its numbers and your own employees are dealing with COVID and you're dealing with safety and you're dealing with supply chain and all of that's for the business you are running. On top of that, you now have to make yourself available to deal with those same issues because you're on a board. If a company decides it's going to do an acquisition, if a company decides it's going to do a, sa a sale, if you have a crisis with the CEO, all of those things say you have to be available. And the reason that folks tend to say, well, you, you need to do one outside board only is basically just the challenges of managing the schedule. And so the ISS used to let sitting CEOs do two outside boards but the recent set of crisis, which have happened in the marketplace, as a result of that, the Council of Institutional Investors got them to drop that to one because somebody who's a sitting CEO, yes, I want you on the board, but you need to be running your own company. And so the demands for board service are just gradually increasing. Every year, the Securities and Exchange Commission comes out with another rule or regulation that the board is supposed to be providing oversight for. We are responsible for providing oversight for company culture. Well, you can't do that going to four meetings a year. So you're going to trade shows and you're going to conferences and you're making presentations to the finance staff or you're 
looking at what the R&D organization is doing. And so the 250 is there, but it's real easy for that to morph into a larger number, depending upon what's going on in the economy. And so and you I'll admit, just stop there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you had mentioned that you were on one board for 22 years. Mm -hmm. What's the average? Is there an average term? The board that I was on for 22 years is a mutual fund board. One of the things that we need to consider is that all boards, all corporate boards are not the same. You can say you wanted to be on a corporate board and then you can say you want to be on a regulated board. Mutual fund boards are regulated. They are not corporate. The role of a trustee on a mutual fund board overlaps with but is different from a public company board that's listed on NASDAQ or the New York Stock Exchange. For the mutual fund board, the tenure is, is typically longer and will go anywhere from 15 to 20 years. On a corporate board, it will tend to be seven to 10, depending upon when you join the board, because there is a retirement age and you can get off of a board either because you hit the retirement age, I did at the nationwide board, or because the strategy of the company has changed. On a number of boards, when I say I've had a career where I've been on 10 different boards, on three or four of them, I'm no longer on it because the company changed its strategy. Mm -hmm. And my skill mix no longer matched what this particular company needed. And boards need to be refreshed. You need a fresh set of skills because the business environment and stuff has changed. If you're on a PE board, a PE board can be anywhere from two years to five years, depending upon when the venture capital company decides to flip the company. And whether if they own it and they have a board, do they sell it to another venture company and they may keep the board or not keep the board? Are you joining a board because you're pre-IPO and the company is going to go public? Depending upon the industry, there are some folks in some of the science fields. If you can keep, you start out with Series A and if you go to Series F, you can be on that board for five to seven years long before they go public. And then you're on the board, you're pre-IPO, and then the biotech company gets sold to Pfizer or Roche or Amgen, and your board goes away. So there's no ideal time frame because you'll have one tenure if you join the board at 60, you'll have another tenure if you join the board at 68. So it's what industry, public, pre-IPO, venture back, they're all different. And I know that you have sat on at least one nonprofit board, and you've you definitely outlined what some of the characteristics and the skills that are needed for serving on the either the, guess the regulated or the corporate board. Are there any other major differences you see between nonprofit boards and corporate boards? In corporate boards, you are not raising money. You're never <laughs> raising money, okay? The company's going out and they're putting new debt agreements in place or they may do equity, new equity often, but the board's not involved in raising money per se. On nonprofits, you have a dual role, one which is how do you help the organization raise money? And then the other hand, how do you help the organization fulfill whatever social mission it is that it has? And so if you're going to join a nonprofit board, you really need to, number one, be interested in the mission. And number two, be willing to do whatever is necessary for the nonprofit raising. 
The other thing I would say is all nonprofits are not the same. There is one category deserving on the American Red Cross or Save the Children. And there's another pedigree towards saving, you know, serving on your local condominium association board. So all, all nonprofit boards are not the same. And I personally, the one commonality is whether you're nonprofit or corporate, you have to learn how to influence your peer. But once you get beyond that, I'm not on a corporate board because of whatever social mission it has. It has a social mission, but I'm on the board to represent a bunch of shareholders. That is a distinctly different slant than saying that I want to serve on the gifts and kind board where I was the chair for a number of years. And the purpose of that board is to take excess inventory from corporations and distribute it where it's needed in the community. And so a large part of my job for years was running around talking to companies about why they ought to give their excess inventory to gifts and kind. That was their form of fundraising. So not all nonprofits, if you, your ballet board isn't necessarily going to get you on a corporate board or give you the necessary experience on a corporate board, it will teach you some of the basics. How do they do their budget? What does a good CEO look like? How do you do a CEO evaluation? There are some cores. But a lot of nonprofit boards there's no DNO insurance, which means there's no liability. You're not operating under fiduciary duty standards. And that's very different from a corporate board, where you need to pay attention to what the indemnification agreements are in the, in the certificate of insurance and the bylaws. And then they implement that or protect that, protect you through the DNO insurance that they go out and buy. But dollars you have to invest are different, the risks that you have between the two are different. And unless you are really on one of the large, higher sophisticated boards, you're not going to find that the nominating and governance committee of a corporate board is going to overly value the experience that you had on a nonprofit board. They'll like the fact that you give back to your community. That's not necessarily the skill set that they're looking for. Right. And so in terms of that process, and you did go into this at the beginning of getting on the board, you know, the recruiting. Is there anything else you can offer about, obviously you said you had the P&L experience. It seemed like it was just a natural good fit. Do you recommend like, you know, mentors or sponsors or anything else, or should you have relationships with people who are already on some of those boards if you're interested in, in being on a corporate board? You should try to build relationships with people who are already on boards. And the number one thing that you can do is become the top of your career field. There are only anywhere from eight to 12 positions on a board. They want people with the broadest business background and stuff that they can. And they want people with a conglomeration of skills that to some extent they can't go out and hire. Okay. So if you're the number three person in marketing, they're going to go look for the number one person in marketing. So the number one thing to do is to focus on where are you in going up your career channel, so to speak, so that you are the head of that area, whether you're a functional lead or whether you have P&L responsibility. They're looking for chief technology officers and chief information security officers. So they're looking for folks that are at the head of their functional specialty. Mm-hmm. And that's what folks are recruiting. There are exceptions to that. 
And this is where networking comes in. I have a number of colleagues that have ended up on boards because people have seen them in action mm. and said that this person's knowledge base, their style, et cetera, would work. Where that tends to happen a lot is on university boards. There are a number of women directors I know who were on the board of Duke or on the board of Northeastern. And on those boards, you have folks who, in fact, are on other boards. And so they will see you in action. And I know of a number of instances where they have then turned around and approached people and said, you know, I'm looking to add somebody on our board. You appear to have the skill set that I'm looking for. And based on that, they're willing to take a chance on you. I put sponsors and mentors sort of in different categories. A sponsor is someone who's willing to put their own capital in the line in order to move you up your career. So they're the person who sits in a meeting and says, I, I, I'll take a chance on Mary. I'll, I'll back Mary. You should put her in this. That's a sponsor because they're putting their reputation on the time. A mentor, I believe more in kitchen cabinets, mm-hmm. which is you have a family folk that you can go to who provide mentoring and counseling in a number of different areas. And how do you talk to the different ones in the group as you need to, depending upon what the challenge is, okay? I have a colleague that I really like who was the head of research for one of the large pharma companies. She's now just moved into her first P&L responsibility. She used to be a client. Now she's a mentee because we talk a lot about how she manages her boss, <laughs> the president of the company, in terms of understanding the limits of her authority. What can she do? Um, because she now has the PL responsibility. But I'm just one of several people that she talks to. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not the only one that she talks to because I don't know a heck of beans about the subject matter area that she's mm-hmm. in. And so she's got a family or a group of us that she calls on uh, different purposes. You can find a sponsor in the board world is someone who's willing to take your resume and recommend it to his own board. And finding those folk are golden or finding someone who's on a board who has what we call boarded out. They're on the four boards but somebody will still contact them and try to say, do you know anybody or could you take on another board? And so to have those people be sponsors and say, no, I'm fully loaded, but let me send you Mary's resume. Okay. I think she has the background that you're looking for. That's what sponsorship looks like in the board world. Someone who's willing to take your resume and either pass it along because you don't pass on someone's resume unless you are confident that they would be a good director. And lastly, how much do you need to know about the product or whatever is the subject of the board of a company? You you always need to understand the company and the industry, but you can join some boards because you are a subject matter expert. And there are a few fields like that. I believe accounting is one of those. Accounting is accounting. And yes, there are some unique features to accounting for banks, which are different from accounting for biotech companies, et cetera. If service software as a service is a different business model, 
And so, yes, you know accounting, but the other thing you have to know and understand is the business model of that particular company. The business model for most manufacturing companies is the same, okay? The business model for a lot of companies that are out there that do software as a service is the same. I don't necessarily believe that if you do one, you can switch to the other. But you do have to, there are certain fields. Cyber is the same, okay? There are certain fields where if you're in those fields, I don't think it is as critical to know the industry that the company is in. But in some industries, if you don't have the industry expertise, it doesn't work. If you, marketing for a manufacturing company is very different from marketing for a technology. One's much more into digital, the other one takes you to trade shows, <laughs> okay? Right. So there, you want to try to answer the question, where will my career skill mix make the greatest contribution? in what industry and in what size company. Think that you can be the president of a billion dollar division and end up on the board of a Fortune 10 company. It's not gonna work because they're gonna say you don't have enough experience in the complexity of running a much larger organization. So there's some fields where size doesn't matter, but there are some skill sets where size does matter, okay? Mm -hmm. And I remember counseling a gentleman who today is, is on five boards, actually, and, and he kept expressing a level of frustration. And I said, you're trying to punch against your weight. You're trying to punch higher than your weight. Mm -hmm. The largest division that you've ever run is 500 million. There are a whole lot of companies out there that are in the five to $700 million range that need good board members. So stop looking for one that's $5 billion. If you can find one and you're in finance, that's fine. But if you're joining this board because you are a subject matter expert in something related to the business that the board is in, then think about what industry, what size, what geography. Geography makes a difference because if you're on the East Coast and your board's on the West Coast, you have just added two days to the amount of hours that you have. All of my boards are on the East Coast. I can get to any of them within two to three hours. So those are just some of the, the things to think about, but really be reflective and read proxies and read the bios that are in proxies. If you say you're interested in a consumer goods company, go read the latest proxy statement, pick five companies and go read the proxy statements, which will give you the backgrounds of the folks that are make up that board and see how you feel about how you stack up. Well, thank you, Paula. This has been amazing. I really appreciate you spending time to talk with us about a topic that, you know, I feel pe people want to know more about, but just don't know how. So it's really great to sure. talk to someone who's so experienced. So thank you so much. I appreciate it. And I wish your members well. There is a great desire right now to add additional women board members to boards. Uh, NASDAQ actually has a requirement and proxy governance, which is one of the governance watchdogs are looking for public company boards to have 30% of their board composition be women. There's something called the 30-30 coalition that's out there that's trying to help public companies get to that number. So there's still a lot of board opportunities out there that I would encourage your members to prepare for. Thank you. 
hope you enjoyed this conversation with Paula and that you feel that you have the tools to create an action plan to take that next step in your leadership journey. For more information on the Arlington, Virginia chapter, visit our website at arlingtonlinksinc.org and follow us on social media at Arlington Links.